So when I ended last week's sermon, I invited all of us to become more like the Garden of Eden at ECC, a place where heaven and earth overlap. And then I affirmed that I believe that from the bottom of my heart that we are ready for this, that God has been getting us ready to be just this kind of sacred space where our God, Emmanuel, God with us, is truly with us, and when we can be, where we can be intentionally with God, present to God, living as those in whom heaven and earth meet. In the days following, I was rereading, reviewing my journal entries from one year ago, and I, I stumbled across something that surprised me. I forget things, that's why I keep a journal. And in Luke, I was reading from Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34, and there Jesus urges us not to worry about how we will live, what we'll eat, what we will wear. And then in verse 31, he gives us a strategic approach to all of life. Instead, he says, strive for his kingdom, God's kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Strive for God's kingdom. And this is what I mean when I say that we, ECC and the Big C Church, ought to be a place where heaven and earth overlap, where we can stand in two places at one time. To seek to return to the Garden of Eden, the paradise of Eden, is to seek, to, to seek or to strive for the kingdom of God. But I was surprised all over again when I noticed something in my journal that I'd written a year ago. When we quote that verse or sing it, as I did growing up, what we never do, in my experience, is quote the next verse, verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Seek the kingdom, strive for the kingdom, and it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Wait a minute, you mean the very thing that I'm supposed to strive after, seek after, above everything else, is the thing God is pleased to give me? Well, that, that seems like a pretty good deal. Not coincidentally, that all ties in quite well with what happens next in Genesis 3, back in the Garden of Eden. Eden was a pretty perfect biosphere, but only if we understand perfection as a state where we are yet free to disobey God. Because that's what happens in today's passage. Perfection, if that's even the right word, perfection includes freedom to choose badly. Perfection allows for the possibility of temptation. It's worth noting, however, that the word perfect is never actually used to describe the Garden of Eden or any of creation. In chapter 1 and over and over again, uh, throughout the days of creation, God sees what he has created and says it is, and and the the scripture says it was good. God saw that it was good. And then the end of day 6, God sees all that he has made. He says, oh, it's very good. Not perfect. Not in the way we use that word. The Garden of Eden is not free from the possibility of sin. Clearly. Of course, there is there's one way in which the Garden of Eden was indeed perfect within its boundaries. We had perfect access to God. Within the Garden of Eden, we had perfect access to God. But here, Adam and Eve are in a, a very good biosphere, is the word I used last week. A biosphere capable of meeting all their needs. And in case you're unfamiliar with that word, that term biosphere, it is a narrow zone of the earth where land, water, and air interact with each other to support life, animal life, plant life. And in the late 1980s, early 1990s, you may remember this, a group of people got together to create what was called Biosphere 2. 
It was, in their minds, a grand experiment that might pave the way for colonies on the moon or Mars. Eight people locked themselves inside Biosphere 2. They were to live there for two years and could only consume or live off of what was grown there or produced from within, including air and water and food. Nothing was to be brought in from the outside for fear that it would taint the experiment. Then on the morning of September 26, 1991, eight people entered Biosphere 2 to begin their two-year stay. They were wearing blue jumpsuits, according to the New York Times, that looked like, quote, surplus costumes from Star Trek VI. That's really not fair. Star Trek VI was a good movie. Star Trek V, not so good. I call Star Trek V, Star Trek, the Enterprise goes to heaven. That's what I call that one. It's really terrible. Biosphere 2 was big news back in 1991. It went viral before going viral was a thing. Back when going viral meant you'd better get to the doctor. But this viral experiment failed big time. It failed in part because even with a price tag of $200 million, it could not produce enough food to support those inside. It failed to produce enough breathable air either. At one point, there was a spike in the CO2 levels that caused the biospherians, as they were called, to have to pause every couple of steps when climbing up a staircase to catch their breath. And as I said, growing enough food for eight people was also a challenge. And one, one of them said that if he kept losing weight at the rate he was losing weight, by the time he exited Biosphere 2, he would weigh negative 90 pounds. It also failed because, as they say in the documentary, Spaceship Earth, uh, human beings are human beings. And amid all their ideals, human frailty, human sin, human dysfunction, it led to brokenness and uh, things just weren't perfectly ordered in their prefab Garden of Eden. And so this morning, we move on in the story of Adam and Eve, and they will fail too. They have been placed in the garden and given freedom to eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life, excluding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, that second tree was just like all the rest. It was pleasing to the eye. It was good for food. And wherever that's the case, it can be a source of temptation. And Adam and Eve are, are like children at times. And if you tell a child what they can't do or what they can't have, they may test you in this thing. It's like when I was teaching my oldest son to ride a bike on North Park Seminary's campus. I was getting ready to give him a shove down the sidewalk. He was ready. I said, whatever you do, don't hit the park bench. He went straight for it. I felt terrible. Still do. <laughs> but that's, that's what we do at times. We desire the thing we can't have. We even call it, based on this story, forbidden fruit. Forbidden fruit. No matter what it is. Enter the snake. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree, any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this passage generates uh, not a few questions for many people. 
I'm sure. Some of the questions are more subtle, some of them not so much. The, the least subtle question in my experience that I have heard people ask is, how can a snake talk? So that's a good question. It's a fun question, but it's not as helpful as you may think. I've asked a lot of these questions myself at one time or another about these accounts early in Genesis, but truthfully, to try and find answers that the Bible doesn't seem to care about is really to miss the point. Author and pastor Brian Zahn put it this way in a thoughtful and humorous poem that he includes in his book, Water to Wine. I have uh, edited one word so as not to upset anyone and to keep my job. You'll be able to figure out which word I changed. Speaking of some of these very questions that we like to ask of Scripture, Zond writes this, Trying to find Noah's Ark instead of trying to rid the world of violence really is an exercise in missing the point. Speaking of missing the point, it's not did a snake talk, but what the darn thing said. Because even though I've never met a talking snake, I've sure had serpentine thoughts crawl through my head. It's what the darn thing said. And what did the darn thing say? For one thing, the snake said that if Eve and Adam ate of the fruit of this forbidden tree, they would know good and evil, or good and bad. But to know something in biblical usage is not merely to have intellectual knowledge about something. It's to experience. It's to have an experiential knowledge. In the same way, when we get to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the new International Version of the Bible says that Adam made love to his wife and she became pregnant. Literally, that verse reads, as it does in the ESV, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. To know, biblically speaking, is to experience something. It is not mere intellectual awareness. The serpent is telling a partial truth. If they disobey God, they will know, they will experience what it means to choose the bad instead of the good which is exactly what the serpent wants. Serpents and snakes in ancient Middle Eastern literature were often symbols of anarchy and chaos and madness, and that is exactly what the serpent is after in Genesis chapter 3. What else did the darn thing say? Well, if we look closely at his words, he was saying, God cannot be trusted. You need to do this on your own. You need to make up your own rules, and you need to live by those rules because God cannot be trusted. But I want us to notice something about the real difference between God's instructions to Adam over in chapter 2 and what the snake, the serpent, actually says. God says to Adam in chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. God begins with a statement of freedom and the promise of blessing and abundance. And please remember the word that Eden means delight and abundance. But the serpent twists God's words and speaks of a restriction and prohibition alone. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent paints a picture of God as unreasonable and stingy. He tries to reframe God. But God does not start with prohibition. God starts with abundance and provision and blessing. You may eat of any tree in the garden. The, the, the restriction, and there's only one, the restriction is given in the context of abundance and blessing. And it's really simply all about human limitations. Because they are human and not God, they must trust God and not seek to live their own way as if they know better than God. 
And that is the limitation and the temptation that we all face. All of us need to learn to trust God and not to think that we know a better way. All of us need to know our own limitations. God is God and we are not. The evil that the man and the woman did was to say to God that they would not allow God to define for them the difference between right and wrong, but would make up their own set of rules. So they took fruit and they ate it. Then the eyes of both of them, verse 7, were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Whereas in the beginning, they were naked and unashamed, now things have changed. They experience shame, and their sin damages their relationships with one another, and something within their own psychological makeup, they cover themselves, and they attempt to hide from one another and from God. Verse 8. The man, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. To say that their eyes were open is to say that they became aware of their sin and their shame, so they tried to hide it in any way they could, and they really weren't very good at it. It's the same with us, isn't it? We don't hide behind trees and fig leaves. No, we're more sophisticated than that. Our coverings are often made of the trappings of success, a nice car, a big house, a good job, a good reputation, successful children, a lot of money. Or we become addicted to things like physical fitness and nice clothes so we can look good and disguise our shame and our pain so no one can see it. Or we become addicted to other things to bury our pain and our shame. Drugs, alcohol, shopping, food, or sex. These days we have access to bigger and shinier fig leaves than Adam and Eve had. The imagery Genesis 3 paints of God is different than what we saw in Genesis chapter 1. There God was more transcendent and cosmic. Here God is described using some human attributes. God goes for a walk in the cool and breezy time of the day. The, the imagery is of a God who likes to take a walk with the man and the woman, but not on this day. The man and the woman, aware of their shame, are afraid, and they hide behind the trees of the garden. You see, it is at this point, it is at this point that fear enters into the relationship between God and humanity. It is at this point that fear enters into that relationship. And while there is a kind of fear or reverence that is always appropriate when we relate to God, scholar John Golden Gay says this, we were never supposed to be afraid of the one who wants to go for a walk with us. We were never supposed to be afraid of the one who wants to go for a walk with us. And once again, as God questions the couple, we see their dysfunction and their brokenness as God's ordered world starts to become disordered by their sin and their shame, and they begin the blame game. Verses 11 to 13. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. It's not a good sign. Then the Lord said, Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, God gives them the opportunity to confess, but they just pass the buck. 
the man even goes so far as to blame God for his own disobedience. It wasn't my fault. It's the woman you put here with me. The woman may be doing the same thing with the, with the snake. It wasn't me. It was the snake. You know, we here at ECC, we did it this morning almost every single week. We give you one opportunity to corporately confess your sins to God. Once a week. In my opinion, in my experience, once a week is not enough. I don't know about you, but at least daily is a good thing. Sisters and brothers, when you become aware of your sin, do not pass the buck. Do not blame. Do not become defensive. Confess it to God in prayer. So there's a lot of talk among scholars and others these days about who or what Adam and Eve were. Were they real people? The first couple from whom all humanity descended? Were they mythological and not real people? Or were they real people but representative of humanity? Other human beings who were living at the time? The people from whom we might say Cain found a wife, people who were other human beings who were sinning as well and that Adam and Eve are representing them. So while questions about Adam and Eve are, are good and important and even fun to wrestle with sometimes, what we need to pay the most attention to is what they did and what it can teach us about ourselves, about how we relate to one another and the world and creation and about the character of God. I don't mind conversations about the nature of who Adam and Eve were, but let's not get caught up in that, because what is most important is what they did and what they can teach us about ourselves, about how we interact with one another in our world, and about the character of God. And so we take them, and we take their story as it has been given to us, and we focus on what matters most. Why is it there, and what is it trying to teach us? And if we're honest with ourselves, their story is our story. Their story is our story. We, we cannot blame Adam and Eve for our sin. We are perfectly capable of sinning and disobeying God and uncovering our shame and hiding from God and others. All on our own. It's as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sin, and then Paul trails off because he's been distracted. He wants to explain something. For the next two or three verses, he does that. He'll come back to this in a minute. But I want you to see here is because all sin. Yes, according to Genesis, sin enters the world through Adam, but we, like he, like Eve, we have the choice in any given situation to choose whether we are going to trust God or go our own way because all sinned. And we still do. Which then brings us to how this passage might lead us to Jesus. The, the Apostle Paul has already hinted at it in this passage from Roman. If through Adam, one man, sin and death have come to us, likewise through the one man, Jesus, life and salvation have entered into the world and have become accessible to us. What we lost in the Garden of Eden, perfect access to God, Christ now makes available to us anew. But even more so, Paul continues the thought he began. He started, he broke off there in verse 12. He says a few things, and then he comes back to it in verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the, man, if the many died by the trespass of the woman, one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? 
Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? There is a whole lot in those few verses. We do not have the time or the energy to unpack it this morning. But here's what is essential. Because of what Jesus has done, because he has passed the test that Adam and Eve failed, that we all have failed, because he has passed that test where we have failed, we too receive the gift of righteousness and we too can reign in life as God intended for humanity from the start. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We are put on earth to represent God's kingdom and to co-reign, co-rule with God over creation. And we can now do all of that in Christ Jesus. How do we get there? By confessing our sin. By confessing our rebellion, our apathy toward God by asking for God's grace and forgiveness, by trusting and growing in that trust that what God has done for us in Christ Jesus is enough, and by pledging our allegiance to God day by day throughout our life, one step at a time over the long haul. This is the pathway to abundant life that Jesus has for us, life to the full. This is the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is the way we get back to that place where heaven and earth meet in your life, in mine, in the lives of this congregation, in our community, and in the world. So I rarely do anything close to what many people refer to as altar calls. That is, I don't invite people to come forward to commit themselves to Christ on on the spot after a sermon on Sundays. That's not because I don't believe in it, I do. It's because I consider what takes place when you do that a very sacred thing. A very sacred thing that really, honestly, ought not to be made, for the most part, on the spot as a snap decision without considering the cost of following Jesus. I would rather take a few minutes or longer to talk with someone who is interested in these things and coming to know Christ than rely on a snap, potentially overly emotional decision in the moment. And I'm not a fan of that kind of pressure on the people who are listening to me or on me to have to do that, frankly. So all of that said, as we close in worship this morning, if you have never come to know Christ and you want to do that, or you want to know more about what it means to do that, I invite you to come forward. I'm not going to stand there. We're not going to sing 16 verses of Just As I Am. I'm going to stand like I always do in the front pew, worshiping with you. But if you would like to come and be prayed with or have a conversation or ask a question, just come down and find me. If by the grace of God we have 15 people come down, I trust that there are leaders in this congregation who will meet you there as well. I just want to invite you to do that if you are at that place. Or maybe you're someone who has walked with Christ, but you're not really there anymore. You've become apathetic or you don't really know that it means as much as you once thought it did and you'd like to investigate that again. Come down for that, too. We'd love that opportunity, that privilege of praying with some people. 
if God so wills. Hear these words that come to us from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, chapter 2. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of God's salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of God's salvation. Let that be our invitation. Wherever you are in your own relationship with God and Christ, let it be an invitation that you would step further up and further into that relationship. Would you join me as I close in prayer? God in heaven, we give you thanks this day. We give you thanks for where things have come from even though they took a drastic detour in the Garden of Eden. We give you thanks, O oh God, for your goodness to us that you have continued to pursue us and pursue your people through teachers and prophets, through priests and kings, through Christ Jesus and the gift of the Spirit and the gift of one another. I pray, God, if there are any among us this morning who are hungry for that relationship, who long to experience that, to know you in that way, that you would give them the grace and the humility to ask for it. And I pray, Lord God, that whatever happens in that instance, that all of us would step a little further in, a little further up, into that place where heaven and earth meet, in our lives, in our households, and in this church body. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.